morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or short story are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how these choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I am very happy that we get to hear from Suzanne Burney, who's going to share the first pages of her latest novel, The Blue Window. Suzanne is one of my favorite writers. Her writing is absolutely gorgeous. So good morning, Suzanne. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you. Suzanne Burney is the author of five novels, The Dogs of Littlefield, The Ghost at the Table, A Perfect Arrangement, and A Crime in the Neighborhood, which won Great Britain's Orange Prize, now the Woman's Prize. Her latest, The Blue Window, was released in January. She has written frequently for the New York Times and the Washington Post. And for many years, she taught creative writing, first at Harvard University and then at Boston College, as well as at the Rainier uh, Writing Workshop in Tacoma, Washington. She lives outside of Boston with her husband and, and a single dog, right, Suzanne? It was just one dog? Yes. But a adorable dog, I'm sure. Okay, fabulous. <laughs> um, I think we should all just share about our pets. Okay, Suzanne, <laughs> give us a quick summary of the book, and then we'll hear your first pages, and then we can talk. The book is set in 2019 and involves three main characters who spend three very trying days in a small, uncomfortable cottage on Lake Champlain. And those three characters are Lorna, who is a clinical social worker in her 50s, who lives outside Boston, and her extremely unhappy 19-year-old son, Adam, who is home for the summer from college and is suffering over an incident that he refuses to disclose to his mother or even name to himself. And uh, Lorna's 89-year-old mother, Marika, who is living in that remote cottage in uh, Northern Vermont and is mostly estranged from Lorna and is even more uncommunicative than Adam. And the um, novel begins when Adam decides to quit using the first person as a way to try to erase himself, a decision that is complicated when Lorna gets a call that her mother has fallen and um, has sprained her ankle. And Lorna decides that she will drive up to Vermont to help her mother out. And she asks Adam to come with her. And she's hoping that on that drive to Vermont, he will finally tell her what is making him so miserable. Um, and she's also hoping that time up there helping her mother might bring them somewhat closer together. And she is a social worker after all. She has various therapeutic techniques that she's um, hoping to try on her mother and her son who prove to be extremely difficult cases, especially when they continue to refuse to talk to her, but they do start to talk to each other. Mm. It's interesting. It takes place in 2019, right before the pandemic then. Yes. Yet, and yet it almost feels like a pandemic setup. So I'm sure it was it was mirroring that in some way, in, in good ways. I mean, for a writer to, to force three characters like this together and force them to exist together in a small living situation, even though in our lives, that's a very bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> a novel that's a very good thing um and it works quite well yeah thank you well I do think that that's something if if um 
writers are having trouble getting their characters to interact with each other, confining them together is a great idea, which is why there are so many movies that are car movies because you're stuck in a small place. Yeah, yeah. And we have so many repressed characters that want to avoid conflict. Okay, let's hear these first pages. Okay. You could assume A stood for Adam. That's what the mother assumed if she found a note in the kitchen that said something like going out A. You could also assume A stood for the first letter of the alphabet or A for anonymous. Or if you chose to get philosophical, you could posit that A meant against and that A was making a political statement by becoming A. If you were into physics, A might stand for something extra negative like A for antimatter. Or if you had been on campus three weeks ago, A probably stood for asshole. Whatever it meant, A was not I, that was the point. A did away with I, I equals death. You might assume the above statement was related to what happened during finals on the lawn in front of the college library, but A would suggest obvious causal reasoning was as bad as complicated causal reasoning. Neither proved anything. Plus explanations turn into excuses. Though if A were ever called upon to argue the case for rejecting I while testifying before the Student Judiciary Council or say Congress, this might be A's response. Erasing the first person is the only responsible moral position to take in a world full of moral positions, most of them absurd and all of them dangerous. To wit, the enraged Twitter lava flow accompanying news coverage of any march, speech, parade, Sunday school Easter egg hunt. Thus, it is profoundly unsafe to attach to anything, to identify as anything, ergo, show no concern, have no opinion, the world is full of fake news, so don't make any. Hence, eliminate I, the raised hand, the flag of existence. Solution. A equals absent. Actually, it had been easier than expected to shed the first person pronoun and most possessive word forms once A discovered that anything could be said in the passive voice. For instance, when the mother asked if A had walked Freddie while she was at work, A could answer, it seems so, or it seems not. If she said, what have you been doing all day? A might say, naps occurred or videos were watched. Added value of the passive voice, no definitely positive or negative statements. Although sometimes affirmation was necessary, like when the mother said, should I buy more avocados when I go to the grocery? For those occasions, A used her chance, a word so affected it could only mean yes. It hadn't even been that hard to give up self-related urges, i.e. fapping. Passivity breeds passivity. This afternoon, when the mother arrived home from her office and opened the bedroom door to begin her usual interrogation, A reported, lunch had been eaten, the trash had not been taken out, Freddie had not been walked, job applications to Starbucks and Wegmans had yet to be emailed. Bad choices were made, she said, and came into the room to sit on the edge of the bed. 
She looked at t-shirts, dirty underwear on the floor, sighed and said she'd had a long day. I won't bore you with the details, but then as usual, she did. The men in her divorce therapy group couldn't understand why mansplaining was a problem. Why not explain things that need explaining? A client arrived 45 minutes late for a session and then wondered if he still had to pay for it. Another client spilled coffee on the office rug and went on talking as if nothing had happened. And then, as the mother was getting into her car to drive home, a huge SUV pulled in right behind her, forcing her to inch out of her parking spot while the driver stood on the sidewalk to make sure she didn't scratch his bumper. Have a good day, she called out as she drove away. A watched her mouth open and close with the familiar feeling of being made of the thinnest, clearest crystal and every word spoken within hearing being a small, jagged rock. Important to remember that she was not trying to be brutal or even tedious. She was modeling forbearance. The key to survival, she liked to say, is accommodation, though she also said she loved her work and loved her clients. But in her determination to be understanding, no matter what the circumstances, she sometimes gave an impression of deficiency, as if she had forgotten how to behave otherwise. Automatic goodness was not really goodness, but what was it? Oppression, that's what it was. She'd smiled, shook her head, said she was looking forward to a quiet evening, to having a glass of wine. Maybe after dinner, the two of them could watch something. How about an old movie? There was a stealthy drift of her lemony perfume as she leaned forward and reached for A's hand, which A slid under the sheet before she could reach it. Sorry if I'm being intrusive, sweetheart. She sat back, still smiling, though her eyes looked unsteady. But I miss talking with you. These types of assaults were increasing and growing more cunning. Fatigue setting in. Every morning, the same routine. Wait for the mother to leave for work. Then cereal in bed, videos, lunch in bed, videos, followed by her return and the afternoon offensive. Going for a walk. Want to come? A short reprieve and then more attacks like the one tonight at dinner. So I've got some ideas of what might be fun for us to do together until windows finally went black. End of day 18 in year 2019 of the battle against the self beset on all sides by demoralizing reminders of familial attachment. Exile, the only remedy. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I wanted her to, she was going to break off a paragraph earlier, but I wanted her to read the paragraph in which he's thinking, you know, she says, sorry, I'm being intrusive, sweetheart, but I miss talking to you. And he thinks back, these types of assaults were increasing and growing more cunning, because at that point, when I was reading the book, I actually laughed out loud at the impossibility <laughs> of this person. I mean, he even refers to her perfume as having a stealthy drift. So <laughs> <laughs> we're 100% inside him. I mean, basically, she's living with Bartleby the Scrivener, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and so yes. we're inside him. Now, um, before we started recording, Suzanne said, well, my first pages are a little unusual. So why did you say that? 
Why do you think they are unusual, but why did you make these choices anyway to have these be your first pages? Well, they're unusual in that the point of view is so strangely constricted and there's so much attention being um, pointed at this, at, at the perspective that you can't sink into the novel in the same way that you might in other ones, that this, this perspective is fending you off. <laughs> yes. And um, and I think that for some people that's awkward. You're you're deciding whether you're going to read the novel based on those early pages often. And my hope was that people would would become curious that this is clearly a character in a kind of extreme situation. And if you put a character in an extreme situation at the beginning of a novel, naturally the reader's going to wonder how you're going to get him out of it. And so that's was the balancing hope to, to making um, to going ahead with these difficult early um, this difficult early introduction. Yeah. And I do. I agree. I, it, to me, it was a little bit destabilizing, but I think it's supposed to be destabilizing because for me, it pushed me towards the mother and having great empathy for the mother. And I'm sure you also play with that as the novel continues. Um, but for me, I was, I felt so um, inside the mother's experience um, of being destabilized by this son that no longer wants to be called I, um, that, that I felt like I was almost inside her, even though we're seeing her from the outside and he's being defensive against her. Um, so that it was just an interesting experience for me. Now, were these always your first pages? Did you always start here? No, I didn't. And I should also say that the novel has three different points of view in it, so that the um, chapters alternate. There's the um, mother who probably gets more chapters than anyone else, Lorna, Adam, um, and also the grandmother. So you do go in each person's point of view. Um, no, weirdly enough, this novel began with Lorna going up to Vermont, but she's gotten a call that her mother is missing. And um, she goes up and waits in this uncomfortable place for news of her mother. And one of the problems, as you can imagine, is it was boring. She was just sitting there alone in the house. Yes. And so I thought this isn't working. Um, and so I decided that I would make the mother alive but missing that she's right in front of her but a person that you cannot communicate with and that made things a little bit more lively but there was still a lot of stasis in this novel trying to talk to someone who won't talk to you is you know there's not a lot of drama there except in the frustration it wasn't until i decided to bring in adam the 19 year old son that a lot of, of action began to happen in the novel. And, and I think triangles are always interesting. They're always yeah. unstable. And he was the, the, the piece that had been missing that once I added his point of view and added him into the mix, things really started to pop. But it was a while before I decided to start with his point of view. Right. Um, and, and I think it, it did um, it also made everything more angular. I, I'm sure this is other people's experience as well, but it's really been mine that it takes a long time to get to the 
where the novel becomes literal, where mm. you're not just generalizing about things or you're not describing things, but you're actually making things very bony and literal. And the decision to, to let him go ahead and erase himself, get rid of I, was, was one of those kinds of literal decisions that started to also create a lot of angularity and for me, a lot of interest as well as technical difficulties. <laughs> right. Um, and it, it's interesting too, because I think <clears throat> writers can feel the energy when they introduce a new character or a new point of view. Um, that that there is already, you know, an absence there and writers can feel that. And I say, if if you have that sense that this other character is introducing some, some new tension and energy, just follow that, eat that up because otherwise it's just so important and it's gonna make the writing easier, I think as well. Um, I also remember, um, you know, it complicates the book and having multiple points of views, but I remember with my first novel, my agent had recommended that I take out the character of Mary and I actually attempted it because I thought Enadina's voice was stronger. However, when I took out Mary, the whole thing was frozen because Enadina is such a repressed uh, personality. And so I said, well, that's not gonna work. Therefore, I need to work on Mary. I need to 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 really make her voice work, and because she had an energy um, that that Enadina alone didn't have. So, paying attention to that in your own prose, where do you feel the excitement yourself? Where do you feel it picking up? And follow that. I think it's really important. Um, yeah. So, again, Adam just seems so impossible, but I do also feel badly for him. Um, now, who is the, you start with the you, a direct address to the, um, to the reader. Did you always start with that? And what, what about that decision to do that? No, I mean, this book began actually in the first person from Lorna's point of view. So one of the decisions I had to make um, was the switch to third person. And I, with Adam, I always felt that he was one of those characters who is narrating his own life, um, who is that kind of self-involved <laughs> and self-interested person that secretly he's performing his life for a grand audience, whether it's Student Judiciary Council or Congress or his, his friends who aren't speaking to him anymore because of this incident that happened. Um, he has that kind of um, deep self-engagement. So that's where the you came from. Yes. And so basically you have a truly selfish character who, <laughs> you know, he's he's eating his mother's food. He's he's I'm assuming she's doing his laundry, all this, but she's he's trying to pretend that he doesn't exist. Um, I do really like. Uh, and, and, and it does, the you is interesting because if he directed his story or his voice to anyone, um, it, it kind of ruins the shtick. So to direct it to a you that, that is itself anonymous, I think is, is interesting. But you do then wonderfully slip in some indications of what happened. And I, and I think you do those quite well. So the first indication is you might assume the above statement was related to what happened during finals on the lawn in front of the college library. But A would suggest so we move off from that. We just get one partial sentence of what happened. And then about a paragraph or two later, we get, though if A were ever called upon to argue the case for rejecting I, 
paragraph or um, parenthesis while testifying before the student judiciary council or say Congress. Um, now, I don't know, he might be imagining the student judiciary council, but it made me feel like he had to face the student judiciary council and, and whatever happened to him, I could be wrong with that. Um, and, then the, and then the final one that we get, at least in these pages, uh, was it? It was something about being on the, oh, I missed, there's something about being on the lawn. No, 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 no. There's another one. Anyway, what I feel that you're doing is referring to the past and referring to this, this basically inciting incident that gets him there, but you aren't just repeating it. You're escalating the references and complicating the references because otherwise it could just seem coy. And I've seen this in books, but they just repeat references back to what has happened because they want to remind us that something's happened, but it's not, it's not an interesting repetition. It's just re repeating. And so we get so annoyed by it. We're like, just tell us what happened. <laughs> Why are you doing that? So he's just giving us little blips. It feels like that grow and grow and grow and escalate um, instead of just repeat. I think that's really important. Now, well, all of your, oh, go ahead. He can't stand to think about it himself. Right. I think we've all had those experiences where there's something that we can't bear to think about, but we also can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. And it's a terrible place to be in. Yeah. Um, and it is a, a terrible kind of constriction. And I think that's that's where um, the impossibility of his current position, I, I'm hoping that the reader realizes it can't last, That right. that it's you can't stay like this forever. At some point, he's going to have to name to himself and potentially somebody else what actually happened. But it, it's so the pressure is going to continue to build and, and it's going to happen in these little, it's like being in a tunnel and looking for where it's starting to leak. Yeah. <laughs> thinking eventually the pressure is going to be too great. So, and that seems important to me at the beginning of the novel is is where are the where's the instability? Where are the fault lines? Where where's the thing that's going to start to give? So that you do refer to it just periodically, and and in those moments the reader is you know sort of sits up straight. It's like in David Copperfield when every so often, right in the beginning, you get something like "If only I had known then what I know now," and then you can go on for like forty pages without anything else, but you're still waiting. You've heard that little twang. Something's going to happen. I mean, I I I think it's absolutely that leak. I always think back to Tony Early's short story, "The Prophet of Jupiter," um, which some of you might know, but I can I can repeat it and post it somewhere. But the the main character is actually a dam keeper. Um, and he's worried, he dreams at night that the dam is going to overflow. And what really is going on is that he himself is repressed and he's holding back all of this past and all the things that happened to him. And we only know what's happened to him through these little leaks of information. So I absolutely do see them as little leaks of information. And we so often have characters that simply aren't willing to face themselves and aren't willing to admit to their own past mistakes. Um, and so thinking of it as a, a leak in the dam that they're desperately trying to hold back, I think is really important. And paying attention to the character's psychology um, you know, I think we're like, oh, the reader needs to know or the reader wants to know, but you have to pay attention to the reader's psychology. And I think it's more interesting that way, too, because we do expect him to, to burst at some point. Yeah. Now, your approach to humor. 
you all of you all of your novels are, are have this wonderful at least the ones I've seen have this wonderful wry sense of humor can you talk about that well I think the more serious the subject matter the more important it is that you treat it with humor <laughs> um yeah. it's just too embarrassing otherwise I I I do feel that humor also allows you into pain in a way that that you can't get there other, otherwise. And it allows you a lot of different registers. There's all kinds of ways that humor um, can allow you to focus on something small while something huge is looming. That's part of the humor. Um, paying attention to characters' weird obsessions with things, with their inflated senses of themselves or their obsessions with um, something that happened a long time ago, which is ludicrous, but we also understand because we all have those problems. Um, I think humor is, is something people are so grateful for when they they come across it. You're more likely to get a reader on your side if you can get them to laugh. They're more likely to believe in your authority, I think, if you don't take everything incredibly seriously. You don't look like you're swallowing your own line too much. I think when people seem in deadly earnest, they're they're usually sort of um, awful. And so <laughs> I, I like A. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, glad humor. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I, I do feel my guideline for humor actually is that people do incredibly absurd things, but they themselves are not absurd, that human beings are not absurd in how important their lives are to themselves. And that's the line that I try to hew to is that they can do ridiculous things, as long as you keep in mind that it matters to them, the things that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, is that the humor here is again, not coming from the son's voice per se. It's not coming from him because he does not see humor in his situation, but it's so absurd. It is coming more from you, the author and how you are juxtaposing uh, certain things that he's telling us. Again, that line when she says, I'm sorry if I'm being intrusive, sweetheart, and you juxtapose that with his reaction, these types of assaults were increasing and growing more cunning. Um, <laughs> that is so humorous, but it's not coming It's not coming from the mother and it's not coming from the son. It's actually coming from you, the author, and the way you've brought those things together um, to show that, that absurdity. Um, these first pages also plant the idea um, the theme, which I'm assuming is of absence and the absence of self, which I'm assuming weaves throughout the whole novel. Is that correct? Well, it, it is in, in some ways, I think it's about people trying to hide from themselves yeah. and, and trying to, um, and trying to erase themselves in different ways. It's about different kinds of shame and what shame does to people, how it distorts them. Um, and one of the things that happens in the novel is, is that great word that you just used, juxtaposition. There is this 19-year-old kid who has something he's just done in college, which he's ashamed about. 
And juxtaposed with that is his 89-year-old grandmother, who's also done something she's deeply ashamed about, but she's been ashamed about it for over 70 years. And a recent shame is one thing, a shame that you've held on to and refused to divulge for all those years is going to turn you into a very strange and limited person, much more limited than Adam in his attempt to erase the first person. Um, so there's that too, is when people are hiding things, what happens to them over time. Um, and also how hard it is to ever understand what's going on in somebody else's mind. Yeah. Even sometimes how hard it is to understand what's going on in your own mind. And that word that's right in the first sentence, you could assume is sort of, again, a, a resonant word that I wanted to, to be in the background for the whole novel is you can assume all kinds of things about other people, but you're never going to really know. And that's one of the very mysterious things about human beings that I hope AI doesn't threaten. <laughs> um, but that basic unknowability is, is perhaps the most valuable thing we've got. Yeah. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Everyone, I'm going to have to let Suzanne go and get everyone else back to their writing desk. Uh, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates of the new uh, writing challenges we're doing, the new um, just focus ideas we're doing. We're probably going to do something next in January, so stay tuned for that. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that same Substack page, including episodes from the past two writing challenges, and you can find them all on your favorite podcast platforms. All right, Suzanne, what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? I would say um, something contradictory, which is absolutely believe in your first pages as you are writing them. At the same time, realize that they could change radically. So they are your first pages for the moment. You know, I really like that because a lot of people will say, don't take them seriously. Don't put too much weight in them. But you're basically saying, no, they they actually are important. They're very important. And yet they could also change and disappear entirely. Yeah. So I think if you can hold both ideas in mind at the same time, that actually is very helpful. Yeah, because it's about um, confidence and believing in the work at hand. You have to have some of that. Um, in order to write the next page and the next page and the next. Or being interested in the work at hand. Interested in the work at hand. Yeah. Oh, no, I think, I think that, that combination is perfect. All right, Suzanne, I think everyone's going to um, love, actually, um, and be able to use a lot of this for their own writing. And I just want to thank you again for being with us and sharing your ideas with us. Thank you so much. This was great. 